Now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 this morning, verses 1 through 8. Let's stand together and hear God's word, taken from Isaiah chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from this people. Nor let the eunuchs say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and holds fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. Better than that of sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we pray for your spirit this morning. Please fill this place with an understanding of your word. Father, fill this place with a faith and a love for you and for your word. And we pray, Father, that this word would blossom in us and bring forth much fruit. We plant the seeds, but you bring forth the harvest. Father, we pray for a big one. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. What's the difference between a marriage and... Boyfriends and girlfriends living with each other. Is there a difference? Well, I think everybody knows there's a difference. You don't have to be a believer to know there's a difference. Pretty significant, isn't it? Between a marriage where a man and a woman living together in covenant and a boy and a girl shacking up together. You know there's a difference, isn't there? The difference is what? The difference is covenant. Right? It's covenant. Difference is covenant. They took vows. Somehow that covenant made a difference. Or Christians today don't understand covenant. They live with God like living with a girlfriend. They don't live in covenant with God. They don't understand the Christian faith. And that's where a whole lot of Christianity is in the day in which we live. If you're a Christian, you're in covenant with God. What does that mean? It means you're in relationship with certain stipulations that will characterize the relationship. It's also a permanent relationship. So last week we talked a little bit about covenant. This passage brings out covenant as well. And I want to get to that. But when you get married, there are certain expectations 
you're going to live together, you're going to talk with each other, you're going to cultivate relationship with each other. You can't just be a bump on the log. Can't run around committing adultery and abandoning each other. You know, that's because you're not living in covenant when that happens. Some people get married and they don't live together. They never talk to each other. They never cultivate relationship. They saturate their lives with sexual sin and there's question for them, are they really in covenant? So covenant breaking in marriage is a lot like covenant breaking with God. But here in this passage, we see in verses 4 and 6 that these uh, Jews and Gentiles are those who have taken hold on God's covenant. So we're going to look at that this morning. What does that entail? Well, there are six things that characterize those who are in covenant with God in relationship with God. We find that in the first several verses and then on through the passage. Look at verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So six things that characterize those who are in covenant with God, the first of which is that they are expecting the salvation of God and his righteousness to come. There are those who are waiting for God's salvation, depending upon it, looking to it. Secondly, I'm going to go through these somewhat quickly. They do justice and embrace the righteousness of God. They look for, excuse me, they hold to God's covenant promises, God's whole word, and then they do justice, embrace righteousness. They look for the salvation of God, they keep Sabbath, and they keep their own hand from doing evil. So this is who we are as Christians. You're a Christian, you know, this marks out your life. This is descriptive of who you are. First, you expect the salvation of God. Secondly, you have come in covenant with God. The word is, you have taken hold on the covenant. The idea of being grabbing onto it. That you have committed yourself to it. You've received it in faith. You're holding on to the covenant. You've accepted the deal. What's the deal? Well, the deal is what God has given to us in his word. So holding on to his word and holding God to his promises is what's involved in coming into covenant with God. That's what it is to be living in covenant with God. You say, what are the promises of God? Well, that he'll forgive our sins. See the new covenant, we sang about that this morning. He forgives our sins. He will be our God. We will be his people. We will walk with him. We will live with him. We come into the household of God. What is it to be incorporated into the household of God? What is it when a child is adopted into a family? Typically, there are somewhat expectations. Well, they eat together. There's communication. There's growing in relationship with each other. That's the kind of thing that happens in a home. And so as we come into covenant with God, we come to his home. We play a part in the household of God. We walk with him, we abide with him, we live with him. So that's the covenant, that's the deal. Okay, thirdly, here's the third descriptive of living in covenant with God. They do justice and embrace righteousness. So there's a commitment to the law of God. Revelation 14 verse 12 describes true believers as those who keep the faith of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. So those are two most basic descriptions of Christians. And the Bible actually boils it down in multiple ways in different places. 
but that's probably the most basic description of a Christian, especially in the, uh, the last days. Uh, Revelation 14 speaks of those who are true believers in the times of the Antichrist or the times of, uh, of great turmoil, whether it be in the destruction of Jerusalem or whether it be the destruction of Rome or any other bad time in human history. How do you know who the true believers, the true followers of Jesus are? They're the ones who keep the faith of Jesus and the commandments of God, which means they respect the commandments of God. They love the commandments of God. They're not antinomians. That is, they haven't signed up to agree with the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2. The man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the man of antinomianism, the man who is anomia. That's the, the term used. So any antinomian is not a Christian. Somebody's against the law of God, doesn't like the law of God, doesn't want to hear the law of God, and doesn't want to walk by the laws of God. That's not a, a Christian. Now, there are obviously times in which we are not consistent in our walk according to the laws of God, but we are constantly being corrected by the commandments of God and brought back into the path according to the principles of God's word. So these are those who love God's laws. They pursue righteousness. They, they love the laws of God. They speak of it. They apply the law of God to themselves and to others, and they equip the man of God for every good work by way of the Old and New Testaments. Now, again, not by a means of achieving our justification or our adoption or our right standing with God, but this is what they do. This is what children do in the household. We have been justified. We've been adopted. We've been brought in the household of God. Now we abide in the commandments of Jesus. Okay, with all of us, we uh, want to be sure that we're pursuing righteousness in all of our institutions as well. So here's another very important element of those who are believers. They, they concerned about God's standards of righteousness, not just in their personal lives, but also in their marriage, in their family life. I appreciate my brother praying uh, for these very basic relationships and, uh, and for the men and for, for the, the husbands and, and fathers. Uh, we want to be consistent in these, in these institutions, pursue God's will and God's righteousness in our homes. But we also want to see it in other institutions. We want to see less babies killed we want to see less killing, less stealing, and less pro-sexual perversions and indoctrination programs in the schools. These are the things that disturb us. They're the problems for us. We have a commitment to righteousness, God's standard of righteousness, and we pursue these things. That's number three. Number four, I'm going through these rather quickly because I want to focus on number six. But number four, we also keep our hands from doing evil. So this means that we are not pursuing that which is against the laws of God. And when we see something that is attracting us to the laws of God, uh, we are mortifying that sinful flesh. And we would, at least in a metaphoric sense, in a spiritual sense, cut off the right arms, cut off the, pull out the right eyes, that we would not uh, be offensive to God in the actions that we take, whether it be in the, 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 our, the way in which our eyes are looking towards this or that, or whether it be our hands doing this or that which is not appropriate, uh, not according to the will of God. Number five. <laughs> Number five, and this shows up in verse six. I'm drawing from a couple of the other verses ahead of time. These are the marks of those who are keeping covenant, living in covenant with God. This is what we're doing. We join ourselves to the Lord, to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. That's verse six. So what is this? To join ourselves with the Lord. This is an association with the Lord, identification with him, and allegiance to him. This is a love and an honor paid to the name of the Lord. I thought immediately of Ruth, who was the Gentile, you know, the Moabitess, 
who, who comes and associates herself and uh, 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 aligns herself with Naomi and the people of God in Ruth chapter 1. She says, wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Okay, that is the spirit of those who join in covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of God, with God himself in this covenant. They are those who, number one, align themselves with a true and living God, and they hang out with God's people. They have a strong allegiance uh, with the people of God. All right, let's move on to number six. And this is where I, I want to land for just a little bit. We also keep Sabbath. It's mentioned three times in the text. Seems to be a special urgency about this principle because it comes back so many times. So I thought to myself, well, let's spend some time with it. If this is so important to God and the Sabbath principle shows up so often in this passage, we need to spend some time on the Sabbath. So, uh, as I mentioned, it shows up several times that we are not those who defile the Sabbath, but also pushing it a little bit further in Isaiah 58 and verses 13 and 14, you find another reference to this. God is very committed to this principle. Look at Isaiah 58 and verse 13. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So let's get behind this principle this morning. Let's understand what God has for us in the Sabbath principle. I think that Americans violate this law, just as they violate all the other laws of God. Uh, so it seems to me that you know, we should, from time to time, take a look at the fourth commandment. Not just the other nine commandments, Americans break all of them. So let's take a look at the fourth commandment this morning, really focus in on this, because I believe that God is dead serious about the Sabbath principle. Now, let me start with this example. I think this will be helpful to you. Say that somebody has a a manager, and he comes to the employee and says, okay, you've got to take the day off. You're going to take a rest tomorrow. Why don't you just go home, relax, get your feet up a little bit. I'll pay you for it. I'm paying you to take the day off. And the employee turns back to the employer and says, no way, Jose. What's wrong with that guy? What's up with him? Employer sticks to his, his, his vision. He says, no, no. Um, you have to take the day off. Here's 400 bucks. Take the day off. The guy comes back and says, now wait a minute, this company depends on me. It will become crashing down on top of all of us if I don't work tomorrow. What's wrong with this guy? He won't take the day off. He's a workaholic. He's not doing well with relationships. He's a control freak. He goes home, sits in the corner, pouts all day. He doesn't enjoy the time. The 400 bucks doesn't make any difference for him. What's wrong with this guy? He's got his priorities wrong. I think that's sort of obvious. There's a lot of things wrong with him. But now, if you think about the fourth commandment, it seems to me to be a rather unusual commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not 
as in be angry with your brother without a cause. Thou shalt not look at a woman, commit adultery, etc. Right? These are commandments that seem to really crimp our style. Especially as those who are natural men, born with the tendency towards violating all of God's laws. But now we get this commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, your daughter, your great manservant, maidservant, etc. Why, why this? Why, why is God saying, I want you to rest, I want you to relax, I want you to stop working. Stop relying on your work for one day. Don't gather any food on the sixth day. God will give you enough food for Friday and Saturday, as he did with his children of Israel in the wilderness. He so wanted them not to do any work on Saturday that he gave them enough food, double food, on Friday so they wouldn't have to work the next day. Here's 400 bucks, take the next day off. So why is God so committed to the Sabbath day principle? And why do people violate the fourth commandment? Fourth commandment speaks directly to not working seven days in a row. This is the basic principle of the fourth commandment in the Old Testament. You're commanded before God not to work yourself, your wife, your children, in your household economy for more than six days in a row. But why won't people take the day off? This is my question. Why will they insist on working Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then back to Monday? Here's why. They're relying on their own works for their physical well-being. They're relying on their own pleasures. They're relying upon their own standards for what will make for the good life. That's why people will violate that Sabbath day principle. Now, we talk about physical well-being. It's, by the way, proven that if you keep people working for 14 days in a row, they will burn out. Okay, that's, that's proven. I think the communists attempted that. They tried to ob- obliterate the seven-day week and all the rest, but it didn't work out. But now, here's my question. No, I'm not talking about physical rest. I'm talking about spiritual rest now because I want to dig into that fourth commandment even more so. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of people say, okay, we're going to stop working. We're not going to do any work on Sunday or Saturday, and we're going to be really good about not going to work or thinking about work, etc., and we're going to rely upon God for our physical well-being this morning or this day. And so there are people who do that. But the principle is more than that. The principle goes deeper than that. God is dead serious about his Sabbath. This is one of the most shocking stories in all the Bible. And unbelievers come back all the time. Atheists come back all the time and say, in the Old Testament, there was a man who was stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. It occurred in Numbers chapter 15. I'm not going to go there, but it was there. Numbers 15, verse 1, the man is stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, think about that for a moment. Why would anybody want to equate the crime of picking up sticks on the Sabbath day to the crime of murder? There was a lot of people who believed that you go out and kill somebody, the, that, that man deserves capital punishment. You shed man's blood, by man his blood should be shed. Yes, that makes sense to a lot of unbelievers. And a lot of believers who read the Bible. There's a lot of believers who don't read the Bible, they don't care about what the Bible says, they don't care about God's law, 
and they don't really believe that capital punishment for murder is appropriate. But that is the vengeance of God upon those who do evil. The civil ministry does not use the sword in vain. They don't use the sword to spank people. They don't use the flat end of the sword. Okay, God has instituted the civil magistrate to stick the sword through people who kill people. That should be obvious. We all know that. But let me ask you this question. Why killing somebody, picking up sticks on the Sabbath day in Numbers chapter 15? (coughs) I didn't understand that principle until I found John 3 in verse 36. Now I want you to look at John 3, 36. This is why. And the word comes from John the Baptist. Makes a lot of sense. John the Baptist, the prophet, grasshopper, legs between his teeth and coming out with some of the sharpest, most heavy, most intense statements in all of Scripture. But there it is in John 3.36. John the Baptist turns to everybody, including us. He says, he says this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Is that good news? That's really good news. But let's read the rest of it. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God shall abide on that guy. You say, well, that's a little bit intense. Well, absolutely. Absolutely it is. Those who resist God's gift, those who resist God's life, the Christ of God, the rest that God has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ, God's wrath will abide on those people into the eons of eternity. See, that's pretty serious. It is serious. Now, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 because this, Hebrews 4 is the New Testament doctrine on the principle of the Sabbath day. And you have to back up into Hebrews chapter 3 to really get the full sense of this passage. I encourage you to, to read this in your own time because I've been meditating on this for so many years and I think I'm beginning to understand it a little bit better. It's interesting how God's word just kind of seeps into our minds over a long period of time. I don't know if any of you have noticed that, but, but in Hebrews chapter 4, I want you to listen. And by the way, this theme phrase shows up, I think, three or four, five, six times throughout this passage. It's somewhat of a theme in the book of Hebrews. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That comes out a number of times here in this chapter and back into chapter 3. Listen to Hebrews 4 and verse 1 now. This is taking it up about halfway through the short discussion on rest. Hebrews 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering into his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of that rest. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them in the Old Testament. You say, well, how in the world was the gospel preached to those in the Old Testament? That was very, very relevant. The gospel was preached when Moses took that rod, raised it up, and that water separated, and the people of God were redeemed and passed through that that water untouched by the armies of Satan. Uh, So, yes, the gospel was preached big time. They should have got the message. The gospel was preached to them, and the promise of rest, etc. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter the rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath, 
they shall not enter my rest. So again, why is God killing people for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day? I mean, I'm trying to address that, trying to understand that, get my head around a little bit. Well, now what you have to do is go back to the passage itself, Numbers chapter 14, verse 21. And by the way, this is very critical here. This is the most important, I think, insight you're going to get this morning. And that is that the Numbers 15 stoning occurred directly after Numbers 14. It's the very next event that happens. So we already know that God is irritated with his people. We see the wrath of God upon his people in Numbers chapter 14 and then on into 15. So so there's a direct connection between what happened in Numbers 14 and what is going on in Numbers 15. Now you say, well, why didn't that happen throughout? No, it happened because of what went on in Numbers chapter 14 when the spies came back from the land. God has this wonderful gift for them, but the spies come back and they say, God is not good, God is evil, God has nothing for us, and these people are going to kill us. Let's go back to Egypt. Okay, that was the message that these ten spies came back with in Numbers chapter 14. And then you get to 15. But before you get to 15, God expresses himself about this whole story. And I want you to to catch this. There's a direct connection in the mind of God between the guy who picked up the sticks on the Sabbath and the rejection of his promised land on the part of his people. There's a connection here. And, and this is something I've never seen before, but I hope you can see it this morning. In Numbers 14, verse 21, this is God responding to the spies. After they said, we're not going, we're not receiving the gift, we hate you, God, we hate your gifts, and we believe that you are evil, and we're going back to Egypt. In fact, we're getting a leader who's going to lead us back into Egypt. I want you to understand how God feels. That's all I'm saying. I want you to understand how he feels about it. You've got to feel the sentiments and understand how God reacts to his people's rejection of heaven. People are rejecting heaven. That's what's happening here. But how does he feel about it? Listen to this. Numbers 14.21, you can follow if you want, but listen, just listen. Truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So his commitment to his own glory is there. He wants his people to be redeemed and taken to heaven. This is what produces glory. Now, verse 22. But because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and the wilderness have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers. Nor shall any of those who rejected me see it, as I live, says the Lord. Just as you've spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, as I live, says the Lord. Just as you've spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to the entire number... But as for you, verse 32, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. Anybody getting the message? Did anybody get the message? What's the message? 
your carcasses are going to be consumed in the wilderness because you rejected heaven. That's why. I'm seeing God's reacting with a great deal of emotion, sentiment. I don't know what you call it, but it seems to me that God is reacting in wrath towards his people. And that's exactly what's being told us in Psalm 95. And again, repeated in Hebrews chapter 4. God is saying, you know, guys, I'm going to give you a place to live forever. I'm going to take you to heaven. I'm giving you a place to rest, a place to put your feet up. Which is, by the way, the, the term rest here that's used generally is not Sabbath. There's two words used. Generally, the rest that he promises in Psalm 95 and then later on in the New Testament is the word used for a place to relax. A place to get your feet up. It's basically it. I'm giving you a place to, to call home and to relax and to be at peace forever and ever. Amen. That's, that's what I want for you. I, I will be good to you. I'm expressing all goodness and all grace to you. You need to trust me on this. But they turned away from the rest. They turned away from that. They spit on his gift and they refused the giver. That's what's going on here. Now, he killed people for this. Does that make any sense to you? That he presents a gift, they spit in his face, reject the most beautiful gift he could ever give them, and he just lets them die in the wilderness. Does that make sense to you? Now, whether or not it does, I guess doesn't matter to me. You know, because that's just the way it is. You can say, well, God shouldn't have any commitment to justice. God shouldn't have any commitment to grace. God shouldn't have any commitment to his, his promises. He shouldn't have any commitment to his covenant. Well, you could say that all day long, but I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. The way it works is he presents a gift, a covenant. We are in faith to receive it. Say, God, you're good. Thank you very much. Receive the gift and then walk into the joy of his presence. That's it. But when you say, you stiff-armed God, say, talk to the hand, I don't receive it, I hate your gift, I see you gave your son for me on the cross, but I'm spitting on him now, that doesn't go over well. It does not go over well. The wrath of God will abide on that person forever. Okay. Now, I believe this is accurate. The greatest insult to God is to refuse his gift and to refuse the gift of Jesus Christ. They've rejected his redemption. They aren't impressed by this deliverance from Egypt. That was obvious within, what, two weeks or was it two days? That to me is mind-boggling that God destroys the greatest empire on earth and saved his people and two days later... They're saying, God, you're, you're terrible. Let's go back to Egypt. These are people without faith. These are people who refuse to receive God's gift. These are people who do not see God as, as gracious. They're not impressed with the power of God. I think that's what it would come down, down to. They're impressed with themselves, but they're not impressed with God. 
And isn't that the problem with most people? Natural man looks at the universe, looks at the goodness of God, looks at the fields yielding so much fruit over the years and says, who cares? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, stuff grows out of the earth. You peaches and plums and cherries and, and wheat and all this stuff. Okay, we're not getting meatballs out of the sky yet, but maybe that's tomorrow. But they look at God's gifts and they just spit in his face. They refuse to receive it with faith and gratefulness. I think this is natural man. But the ultimate, the ultimate insult to God is to refuse his rest. It's to refuse Christ. So back to the original question. We understand that God wants us to rest from physical labors one day a week. But why is the Sabbath such a big deal? One reason, because the Sabbath is God's rest. The Sabbath is the promised land. You say, well, the promised land wasn't heaven. Neither is this church. Neither is the convocation. Neither is the people of God. Neither is the first day of the week. I get it. But they rejected the down payment. They're rejecting everything else. That's the point here. The Sabbath is the promised land which is an earthly picture of heaven. The Sabbath is God's gift to you. It's ultimately, of course, Christ. So Isaiah 56, verses 2 and 6, says the believer is one who does not defile the Sabbath, but calls the Sabbath a delight. The first day of the week, the Lord's day, is a means of entering into this rest. Think of the Sabbath as something like the promised land. Canaan isn't heaven, neither is this, but it's a warm-up session for heaven. I think every pastor I've ever heard, probably in my 58 years of being involved in the church, they'll say, if you don't like church, you won't like heaven. It's like this little cliche that they all bring out, right? How many of you heard that before? Yeah, all of you have. It's, it's just a common expression. But it really comes from this principle. If, if you don't appreciate coming together in the presence of God with the people of God, to associate with the people of God, you're just not going to like heaven very much. If that's nothing that draws you in on a Sunday morning, you're just not going to appreciate the rest of it. And they didn't want Canaan, and they didn't want heaven. And so their carcasses rotted in the wilderness for it. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 4. I want to draw application, just a brief application from it. Verses, verse 9 of chapter 4, so there remains a Sabbath for the people of God. And then verse 11 follows up with the application. Hebrews 4.11. Strive and struggle, labor to enter into the rest. That's one of the oddest oxymorons in all the Bible. Strive and struggle and labor to enter into the rest. What's up with that? Well, there's a struggle. There's a struggle to take, gain the promised land. There's uh, something of a fight to take the promised land. There's a struggle to make it to church on Sunday. It just is. You say, well, none, one as hard as fighting the giants and the land to take Canaan. Not for our family. I think I'd rather work on some giants and try to overcome the spiritual opposition to get here on a Sunday morning, okay? I'm just saying, there's a struggle. There's a striving. There, you got to work at getting into the rest. 
for, for a lot of reasons, the world, the devil, the Canaanites are pushing back on you. We've talked about this many times. People have told me, some of my sisters, my brothers have come to me and said, you know, driving to church on Sunday morning, I just feel like we're entering into spiritual warfare. Yes, absolutely. You've got to strive and struggle to enter into Canaan. And here's another problem. Egypt is more fun. That's why the children of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. Egypt is just more fun. It's more fun to watch movies. I think the number one reason why Egypt looks so good is that people just don't believe God. They want to do their own pleasure. What does that mean? To do your own pleasure. Isaiah 58. What does that mean? That means you become the definition of what's fun. You become the definition of what is rest. You become the definition of what makes a good holiday. That's autonomy. That's not believing God. God says, this is going to be great. You say, no, this is going to be great. I'm going to define what is fun, what is the good life on my own terms. Now, you can do that on Sunday. You can do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I think it's a, it's a seven-day-a-week kind of thing in which you're either going to define what is good in your life by what God says is good or by what you think is good and by what you think is fun. And that's why most people... They say, to relax, i got to watch TV. To relax, i got to watch a movie. I just, it's just, you know, and God is saying, no, get into my word, come into Christ, take some time, be in your prayer life for the next hour, and you'll be so much more refreshed if you be in the presence of God. Come and be with the people of God and pray with the people of God, and you'll find amazing refreshment on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. You'll be refreshed, you'll be good, it'll be great. And you're saying, no, I define fun on my terms. I define rest and relaxation the way the world defines it. Or the way I define it. I think the number one reason Egypt looks so good is that people just don't believe God. They don't believe it's good. They don't believe that God has something better for them. Isn't that the number one reason why they didn't enter the Canaan? The promised land. Isn't that it? They thought Egypt would be better. They didn't think God had something better for them at Canaan, in that land. And because they didn't believe God, they didn't believe that God had what was good. God had the better thing. They did it their way, and their carcasses rotted in the wilderness. God promises rest, a resting place for the soul As Augustine said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. He gives us Christ. He gives us peace. He gives us resolution. He puts us in a place where there's no more condemnation, no more screams of conscience, no more yawning emptiness of life, no more the screaming needs that are never filled, endless searching for that which does not fulfill. And this is what the ungodly do all the time. They're crawling across the desert looking for the next little appearance of water and they can't find it. They make it over there and then they go somewhere else and they're never fulfilled. And yet God promises fulfillment. God promises rest. Strive to enter the rest, brothers and sisters. Strive to enter the gate. Strive to know Christ better. Strive to be with Christ and his people. Strive to learn of him. Strive to believe in him. The Lord's day is not a family day. The Lord's Day primarily is a day of convocation with the people of God. 
By the way, Sabbath in the Old Testament is defined as convocation. The Sabbath is a convocation unto the Lord. You'll find that in Numbers. I think it's chapter 15. It's a convocation with God's people. It's been intended to be that way from the beginning. 1 Corinthians 16.1 says they do it on the first day of the week. It's very clear. The early church did it. They came together in convocation on the first day of the week. Very clear. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, so much the more. As you see the day approaching. What is that? The day of judgment. Temporal, eternal, whatever, either way. Then here's one more insight I want to throw out. One more. Remember, Hebrews 3 and 4 is God's section on the people saying, no, we don't want Sabbath. We hate your rest, and their bodies would die in the wilderness. That, that was the warning that came in Hebrews 3 and 4. And here is one of the applications that shows up immediately in the, in the midst of this. It's the very New Testament passage dedicated to the subject of, of Sabbath. And here's what it says. Hebrews 3, exhort one another daily. So long as it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And part of that holding on steadfast is the means of grace that God has provided, whereby you will be continually sustained in your faith, encouraged in your faith, upheld in your faith. You say, well, how does God uphold me in my faith? How will he preserve me from here to heaven? By the means of grace. He's given us the means by which this will be accomplished. Well, you say, oh, I don't need it. I don't need God. Any of your help? Don't need any of this? It's not a good position to be in. Mutual exhortation. Daily. Hebrews 3 ups the ante. Not just once a week. Daily. 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 Lest any be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There it is. But even more so, not just that we, we just have to do this, but that we're delighting in it, delighting in it. Delighting God's rest and His goodness for us. Well, sadly, the Jews rejected this rest. They rejected Christ in that first century. They were very good on the external observance of the Sabbath, by the way. So we have to be very cautious about this externalism in relation to Sabbath keeping. I, that to me is another thing we have to keep at significant distance from us. Where there's this externalistic 347 things you can do with your hearing aid on the Sabbath day, but you can't change the batteries kind of approach to the Sabbath day is the way to ruin it. And Jesus makes that point throughout the Gospels. But the point is that the Jews rejected Christ. They rejected the rest. But the blessing of the covenant, verses 3 and 4 of our passage, the blessing of the covenant, God's presence, will be for the outcasts, the son of the foreigner, the eunuchs. Look at verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Or let the eunuchs say, Here, I am a dry tree. What does this mean? Well, Ephesians 2, Romans chapter 11 says, The middle wall of partition came down between the Jew and Gentile. God made a way for the Gentiles to come in. In fact, he grafted the Gentile branch into the already existing church, the Old Testament church. It already existed. The Old Testament church has been there all along, and God takes that Gentile branch laying out there in the middle of the wilderness, and he grafts it right into 
the, the, the church of the Jews and brings us right into the covenant of the promises. That's why we're covenantal. Because we as Gentiles have been brought into the covenant. That's it, guys. So who are these eunuchs, foreigners and exiles? Who are they? These are people without heritage. They have no legacy. They have no real identity. They have no roots. Just a tumbling tumbleweed that tumbles into town, tumbles right out of town, tumbling into this generation, out of this generation to be burned up with the rest of the tumbleweeds. These are the eunuchs that n- never have children. They don't get married. There were a lot of eunuchs and, and single men and women in the early church. Not sure why, but because of the present distress, persecutions always bring about more eunuchs. It always does. It's hard to get married when there's so much spiritual and physical tribulation. Spiritual forces are st- so strong against you, it can be very hard to get married. And when there's persecution, people are dragging you away to prison. It's hard to get married. I get it. But, you know, these guys look at the picture of a family with a godly heritage. There they are, seven children, seven grandchildren, 140 great-grandchildren, all crowded into the picture. And that's just not them. They don't have a temporal heritage. There's no generational blessings like that for them. What do you say to a man whose father and mother is dead and his children have disowned him? What do you say to that guy? You have this wonderful generational heritage presentation to somebody who has no children. That's very hard. See, I'm just trying to present you the picture of somebody who feels like they have a kind of a barren life. They, just, they don't have a fruitfulness about their lives. These are eunuchs. These are the outcasts. They have nowhere to go on Christmas. They have no 200-year heritage, no 200-year legacy. It's a joke. That's not for them. They're eunuchs. They're outcasts. They have no roots. This is the wilderness, the spiritual wilderness of so many people around the world. But these outcasts, these eunuchs, they have a place here in this building. They have a place with the people of God. And it's a beautiful thing. And just, just an aside, in the 1800s, they came up with a word called heathen. They talked about the heathen countries and the Christian countries. It was somewhat of a derogatory term. It became increasingly derogatory as the centuries went by. Heathen. The heathen. Brothers and sisters, now the Christian nations are the apostate nations and the heathen nations hold the most hope for the gospel today. So let's humble ourselves a little bit in the Gentile world. Okay? We're turning into heathen. The Christian nations are the post-Christian nations. But the Spirit of God is moving elsewhere now. Praise God. He's going out to the outcasts, going into the highways and byways, so people are actually riveted to the gospel message. And they bring down the ceiling when they sing their praises to Jesus. It's phenomenal. The blessings that attend... The eunuchs, the foreigners, the outcasts, what are they? Verses 4 through 6. Beautiful, guys. Hopefully this resonates in your heart right now. Thus says the Lord, the eunuchs keep my Sabbaths, choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. Just let that sink in for a moment. A place and a name. 
I'm going to give these orphans, I'm going to give these eunuchs a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. Wow! I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath holds fast my covenant. Let me ask you this, what more could you want out of life than a place and a name? A place and a name. The vagabonds adopted into families, they get a place, a name, better than sons and daughters. It's an identity. It's a belonging. It's who you are. And I've talked about some of this identity recently, but it's, it's so encouraging when you read about identity, how essential it is for the Christian life. Listen to Ephesians 2. You are chosen, predestined, adopted children, accepted in the beloved. You are a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians. You are no longer a fornicator, a homosexual liar, or any other sinner by identity because you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified by the blood of Jesus. I need a hallelujah or an amen now. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. You are a free man, a free woman, freed from the power of sin in your life. You don't have to sin anymore. You're not forced to sin. You can opt not to sin. Amen. You're reconciled to God, Colossians 1. You are a fellow citizen with the saints in the household of God, in the family of God. You are a servant of God, a servant of righteousness. You are more than a conqueror through whom loved you. You are innocent, righteous, right standing before God the judge. You're accepted in the relational sense as adopted sons of the living God. All of that. I noticed this just last, this last week. I'm going to share with you Ephesians 4. Uh, turn with me to chapter 4 and verse 32. This, this to me was phenomenal as we think about how the word of God communicates to us. That we never separate identity from what God gives us as the injunction or the imperative. We never separate our identity uh, from the indicative or the imperative on either side. I want you to see how this works. I just noticed this. I Just a few verses. Follow me. Through Ephesians 4.32 down to the second verse of chapter 5. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That's imperative. Even as God in Christ forgave you. That's indicative. See, God did it. Now you forgive. Now you love because you are forgiven. Now follow the next verse. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's imperative. Okay? I'm telling you to do something. Be imperative. Uh, be imitators of God as the imperative. Why? Look at the very next section of that verse. As dear children. That's identity. You would be imitators of God if you knew that you had the identity of God, the family identity of God. You bore the DNA of God and therefore you can be an imitator of God because you are a child in the household of God. So we don't separate identity ever, ever, ever from imperative and then keep keep going in in verse 2 and walk in love. What is that? Walk in love. What's that? Imperative. Absolutely. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet swelling savor, that's indicative. God did this. You are this. Now, therefore, do that. And you see that woven throughout. It's impossible to unwind scripture. We tend, of course, to separate these things in the modern mind, and it's destroyed the faith in so much of modern-day evangelicalism. By unwinding these passages and not recognizing that the imperative, the identity, indicative, all sort of wound in and around each other. So important, brothers and sisters, you know your identity. You're a child of God now. You've been bought. You've been chosen. 
You're in the, accepted in the beloved. You're a fellow citizen in the household of God. You're new creatures in Christ with a new constitution. The old man condemned to death, the new man alive in Christ. That's who you are. And when you're born into a family, this is true of every child in this room, including the adopted children. When you're adopted into the family, born into the family, either way, what happens? You get a strong sense of belonging. You show up at that table 478 times. Make that 4,327 times at the table or the table in your own home with mom and dad. They sit in their regular seats. You've got your seat. Your brother has his seat and your sister has her seat. And you've been there. You've lived there. You've, you've been at the table eating with mom and dad for the last 4,375 meals. You belong there. You have a chair. That's your chair. Remember one time in family worship, my, my brother took my chair. What are you doing in my chair? That's my chair. I've been sitting in that chair for four years. But it's that sense of belonging. Kids, you know what I'm talking about? It's a sense of belonging. You have a sense of identity. You're connected to something. You're a Swanson, a member of the church community in America. But you can lose your roots. You can be disinherited. You can be removed from church roles. You can be expatriated. And then finally you die. So that kind of thing happens all the time in temporal life. But let me ask you this. What happens when God names you? When your mom and dad name you, you come home, you're raised in that home, you have your own bed, you have your own chairs. But what happens when God names you? God gives you a name. God brings you into his family. Now you've got identity that's not going anywhere. You know where you belong. You know who you are. And that belonging never goes away. You have an eternal destiny. It can't ever be taken from you. Is there anything better in all of eternity than you having a name given to you by the living God and a place that is prepared for you by Jesus, his son? Okay, let's move on. Here's the final point. These are joyful members in the covenant. In the relationship, the church, the house of prayer, and the blessing will spread through the nations. Let's just hit these verses just the next two minutes. Even them, that is the vagabonds and the eunuchs, I will bring to my holy mountain. And I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted to my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So much more we could say here. But the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ has been received. Our sins are forgiven. We're members of the house of prayer. It's a beautiful thing. In gathering is coming, and there are going to be more gathered from all over the earth. This is again the prophecy. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. This church is growing everywhere. We're talking about how the church died out in North Africa a thousand years uh, ago, roughly, well, 1,500 years ago, but the church took off in Ireland under Patrick, and that continued until the year 2020 when finally brought infanticide back uh, into Northern Ireland after 1,590 years of powerful influence. But, you know, church had died out in North Africa, a little bit depressing, I'm sure, but then all of Europe is being taken over the next 1,500 years. Phenomenal. Now the church is dying out in Europe and America, but the church, I heard just yesterday, is growing in New Guinea. It's growing in Asia, Africa, South America. It's just expanding around the world for the next thousand years, no doubt. 
there will be an amazing growth, generational growth of the church of Jesus Christ throughout Africa, just like we saw in Europe. And we begin to see this expanding around the world. Phenomenal. The Holy Spirit of God is active everywhere. He will gather the outcasts and will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Jesus said, I have other sheep in other folds and they will come to the house of prayer. The ultimate manifestation of life is rejoicing before God in the house of prayer. It's joyful, prayerful worship in the church of Jesus Christ, the house of God and the house of prayer. I'm beginning to see not three marks of a church, five marks. Add love and prayer. Some people don't add love and prayer, but it seems to me prayer and love, essential for the church. And we rejoice, belonging to a place in which we come into prayer, which is communication with the true and living God. It's, It's amazing. It's the highest form of rejoicing possible known to man when we come into relationship and we speak to God and he speaks to us through his word. It's the privilege of belonging that finally we know we belong here permanently. It's a privilege to to have a name, to have identity, to have an eternal home in the church of Jesus Christ. It's the privilege to pray to be with God and his people and it is the cause for tremendous rejoicing. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, Oh, we are not worthy of any of these great blessings that you've poured out upon the vagabonds, the eunuchs, the spiritual destitute who have crawled in, Father, from the highways and byways. And yet you have poured out upon us amazing blessings. You simply say, come to the feast. You simply say, come in to my house. You simply say, come to Jesus. And as we come, we say, Lord God, we receive it, we believe it, we accept Jesus, and we come to your rest and we look forward to, the, the, to what this relationship will produce in our lives. As we come into relationship, we walk with you, we talk with you. We're in relationship with the body of Christ. And we enjoy the presence of the living God. Oh, Father, we pray that our joy would be full. We pray we would sense your presence. We would know this blessing. And Father, that there wouldn't be a single person here walking away saying, I'd rather die in Egypt or I'd rather rot in the wilderness. But Father, all of us come into you because you are good. You have a good gift for us. You present it to us and it is just for us to receive it by faith. Oh God, we praise you. We thank you that you've cared for us enough that you've sent your son that he would make a way for us to heaven, to eternal glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I'd like to encourage you one more time in this matter of identity. Ephesians 2 verse 11 is what's already read by my brother Todd this morning. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This applies to both Gentiles and Jews. All of us 
We have all in some respects been strangers to the covenant, cut off from the covenant, but God has brought us near, and he's brought us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the main point I want to drive home as we come to the table. As members of the families of God, God says in Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who calls by my name, everyone's called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. So the point is that God has put his name upon us. I am Kevin Swanson. But now as I'm adopted into the family of God, God has placed his name upon me. It's a new name. Now my name is Kevin Godson. See, your name is no longer Jonathan Gibson. Your name is now Jonathan Godson. It's Sarah Goddaughter. It's Anna Goddaughter. See, our name is different today because we have now an everlasting name. I don't believe the name Swanson is going to stick. I think the name Godson is going to stick. I think that's the name I will have in heaven. There may be some doctrinal differences between you and I on that, but... Um, I do believe that this new name that God has placed upon me is going to be far beyond anything that these natural relationships have given to us. So brothers and sisters, you have been brought near, not by circumcision, not by birth, not by citizenship, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why you have a place and a name forever. You'll never lose that identity. You are chosen. You are adopted children, accepted into the beloved. The same word used for Mary. That accepted into the beloved, same identical word used for Mary, who is the well-favored one. It's the only other use in the Bible that we, as Christians, are in Christ. Christ was in her, and that's why she was well-favored. Now, we are in Christ, and that's why we are well-favored ourselves. It's amazing that we, being in Christ, are so well-favored, as, as close a relationship, and I would say closer a relationship, than Jesus had with Mary. We have a close relationship with with Jesus in that we're now called the highly favored one, the very much beloved of God. You are the very much beloved, very much loved son and daughter of the living God. Now let those words just sink in. Receive those words for, for just a moment. I am loved. I'm very much beloved. I am very much favored. I've been highly favored by God. Almost like Mary was highly favored and chosen by God, I am now highly favored and chosen by God as well. And I have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. The birth certificate for us was sealed in the blood of Jesus. So as we come to the table, let's remember that it was the blood of Christ that brought us near where we were very far away. But the blood of Jesus has made us the friends of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ, and the sons and daughters of the living God all by the blood of Jesus, born by the blood of Christ. Amen. Father, we meditate on these truths. They're too big for us. We should spend the next 600 days thinking about these truths or maybe just the rest of eternity. But Father, we pray that you would bless this meal to us as we consider that we have been bought. We are the sons of God. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, brought near by the blood of Christ and made the true sons and daughters of the living God. Father, may we bask in this new name, this new identity. Oh, Lord, as we receive the cup that seals the blood of Jesus Christ, we pray, oh God, that we would know our our sonship, our child relationship that we have with you now. Ah, what a beautiful thing that we have been loved and we've been favored and we have been called the sons and daughters of the living God. What a privilege, what a privilege. 
In Jesus' name, amen.